Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 19. I'm your host, Daniel Holzman, and today I'm in conversation with Steve Langley. Juggler Steve Langley is many things, a fettuccine brother, a paddleball king, a bubbleologist, and so much more. Before we get to the podcast, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. I've been a member of this great group of jugglers for over 35 years. Information about the IJA can be found at juggle.org. And don't forget, all the Drop Everything podcasts can be found at juggle.org in the e-juggle section. Also, a big thanks to my engineer, Karen Holzman. Now sit back, drop everything, get ready to listen to Steve Langley. A real pleasure today to talk to a wonderful juggler on the Drop Everything podcast. Welcome to Drop Everything podcast number 19, the fantastic, the fettuccine, Steve Langley. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Dan. Now, I know we've known each other for quite a few years. I know a little bit about your backstory, but let's start with that because now I don't think your father was in what we'd call show business, but he had a very interesting occupation. Can you talk about that and how that informed your early childhood, what he did? Yes, yes. My father was a professional stock car driver back in the early days of a NASCAR. How would you describe a stock car? Well, sure. Originally, they were cars that you could literally drive off of the showroom floor with a uh, yeah, a few minor modifications, and, and they're on the track racing at high speeds. I could have figured that out. Stock, you know, like off-the-shelf car. Now, did he, did he drive other cars, or was he primarily a stock car racer? Yeah, you know, in his career, early in his career, he started out driving what they call modified cars, which, once again, literally kind of makes sense. They were cars that were more modified uh, mm-hmm. from their original, and, the, and then most of his career was spent racing stock cars. Now, when you're a professional car racer... Is there like a circuit? So did he travel a lot? Was he gone from home a lot? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. He did travel a good bit. And we would follow him around when we could, when we were on vacation from school or, or during the summertime. So, uh, you know, I got drugged to a lot of races, whether I wanted to go or not. It was an interesting experience. And I think it kind of laid the groundwork for, for sort of the gypsy kind of lifestyle that is required to be a performer, having those roots in my early years, traveling to go see these races that my father participated in. You said we. Did you have uh, siblings? Do you have brothers and sisters? Yes, indeed. I have uh, three older brothers. You know, my mom would dress us all up alike in matching little shirts with our dad's number on the back, trundle us around to, to go see these races. And, you know, you would mentioned it's not really kind of showbiz, but it's something I realized relatively early on is, although they call it a sport, which I think is stretching you know, the definition sure. of the word sport, I did see it pretty early on as basically a big show, just a show business, but on a really large scale. Racers, they had to have personality because they had to get sponsorship. And his name was Elmo, right? Elmo Langley? Elmo Langley, yeah. And did he have a nickname or anything? Any kind of moniker? Well, with a name like Elmo, you don't really need <laughs> <think. laughs> you know? But there were certainly some colorful nicknames in the sport. I mean, some of his guys, his friends had names like Smokey and Cuckoo and Tiny. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a colorful world to grow up around. I think we jugglers need more nicknames. I, mean, I know like in the footbag field, like, you know, if I talk to Pete Irish, he was called the Executioner. Oh, they all give each other nicknames. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then uh, Tim Kelly was the stick man, and there was the disco disco ninja. But jugglers, very few jugglers have. There's the butterfly man, of course. But uh, We need to introduce that, perhaps. Yeah, you could be, Steve Langley could be, um, well, I don't know. What would your nickname be? It's hard to say now because I've just spread out into so many different things now. Uh, I'm going to call you Mr. Unlimited. Mr. Unlimited. Oh, I like that. I like all right. It. 
All right, so, so in your early childhood, you're traveling this circuit with your dad. What kind of things were you into as a kid? I mean, and when did juggling first appear? Well, you know, juggling didn't come into my life actually till, till later on compared to when it comes into most professional jugglers, jugglers' lives. Uh, early on, I guess probably skateboarding was one of my early interests and fascinations back in the, in the 70s, in the early sort of phase of, of, of skateboarding. Yeah, people start getting into pool riding and the vertical, the half pipes. And Did you do that? Did you get some air? Did you get out of the pipe and do the whole... I actually had my own little patented move. They called it the Gumby Air because that was my nickname when I was a skateboarder. I was Gumby. Ah, there you go. Because to be good at skateboarding, you got to be really limber, really loose, and be able to bend yourself in different ways. And so to be really good, you'd be called a rubber man. So therefore, Gumby, mm. if you're Gumby, you're a rubber man. So, so I had this patented move that I invented, this sort of upside-down grabbed aerial that come to find out there was someone on the West Coast that had parallel developed the same move and called it something else. But... Uh, we, we were on the East Coast emulating a lot of what those guys, Dogtown and the Z-Boys, around that same era. You know, we were, of course, looking at the magazines and seeing all those moves and trying to recreate those moves here in, in our little world on the East Coast. And how serious did you get? Did you compete? Was it something that really became your identity for some degree? Yes, indeed. I actually made it to, to a competitive level and, and won a few trophies. And we would travel up and down the East Coast, the Eastern Seaboard, hitting little contests. Uh, you know, this is when I was between the ages of probably 14 to 17. So I wasn't even driving for, for part of this. My mom would let us wander off with uh, some of our more uh, older skateboard friends. And it was a great experience. Once again, sort of a gypsy type lifestyle just like the racing thing, traveling around, a lot of uh, sort of camaraderie, that sort of thing. And also a very difficult skill to learn. Like if you look at skateboarding versus juggling, you have a wipeout in juggling, you're doing five clubs, they all explode on you. <laughs> you just pick them up and try again. You're in that half pipe or in the pool. Any, any skating injuries in, as a younger man? You know, Dan, I, I always felt like, knock on wood, I, I was very lucky. I escaped a pretty long and, and good skating career without ever breaking a bone. And almost every one of my friends suffered at least one break. So every time I'm tempted to get back up on a skateboard again for fun, I always feel like I'm tempting fate. You know? yeah, they're building a skate park in our town, like right down the street. And part of my mind is thinking, <laughs> maybe get the old skateboard out of the garage. Yeah. You know, I still have some friends my age. You know, I just turned uh, 52 this year. I have some friends uh, my age that are still skating and they, and, and they keep trying to coax me back into it. They're like, oh, come on out, man. We can take it easy. You know, you don't have to go for it too hard. And, and I'm just thinking it'll be my luck. I'll go out there and just bust on my first try. So I, I kind of stay away from it now. I feel like uh, I had a nice, good run. I never broke a bone. I won some trophies. Uh, it'll be a part of my youth and I can live with that. <laughs> and, and then when did you first become aware of juggling? When did you first see it even? And, and know there was something, oh, that's juggling. From the skateboarding thing, of course, led to uh, following the Grateful Dead around the country. Is that a natural progression, skateboarding to Grateful Dead? I never heard that before. Yeah, the next chapter of my life was, you know, I got to one of my skateboarding friends. His brother was good friends with the Grateful Dead and turned us on to them, said, hey, they're coming to your town. You need to go see them. So we went to see them, and that unfolded a chapter of my life that led to juggling. I was at a concert one time and saw these guys juggling torches at the end of the, the concert, and it just sort of inspired me and sort of lit a fire, pun intended. You know, I wanted to learn to juggle specifically so I could juggle torches. That was kind of the primary motivation was pyromania. <laughs> you know? Okay, so when you saw it, then you thought, okay, so how did you go about Did someone show you? Did you get a book? What was the next step? Sure, sure. At, at at this point, I was I was cooking. I, I went to cooking school and thought I was going to spend my life in, as a chef. Okay, so that was your sort of career path. Was so you done the skateboarding, travel with the dead, 
He said, okay, I'm going to settle down, become a cook, just learn to juggle torches for fun. Cooking was a job that I could take and and I could go somewhere and work for a while and then quit and go see a few shows and go on tour Mm. and come back and get another job cooking. They were pretty fruitful jobs. And so I decided, well, go ahead and get a cooking degree if I'm going to do this. So I got an associate's degree, went to cooking school, was all set to go. And and actually, that's where I learned to juggle. One of the bartenders uh, in the restaurant where I worked knew how to juggle, gave me some lessons with using lemons, actually. He used lemons and gave me some lessons in the kitchen, bruised a lot of lemons. But uh, the coolest thing was he actually had an old beat up Schwinn unicycle in his attic that he never used anymore. And, and, And he gave me that as well. So I was able to learn to ride a unicycle around the same time I learned to juggle there in the back alley of this restaurant. So uh, around that time, ju- juggling was on TV a lot. So it's like the early 80s, maybe? or what? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's Carson, you see some jugglers. Yep, yep. And- the Karamazov brothers had their uh, Showtime special on. At that point, I had a ponytail. It kind of looked like them. And I remember seeing these guys thinking, man, if these guys can be off-Broadway doing this show and making a career out of this juggling thing, how cool is that? Michael Davis at that point was mm-hmm. on Letterman a lot. Uh, you know, there were just lots of opportunities to, to see professional jugglers and variety acts on TV. And it seemed like a cool thing. It seemed like an interesting path, different from being a chef. <laughs> So you're cooking though, and you, so you learn to juggle, and almost immediately you're, you're starting to think more more of a long-term pattern, like, okay, where can this take me? Is that sort of hmm, interesting? Yeah, there was a club here locally. There, there was a juggling club here locally, uh, the Charlotte Jugglers Association, and uh, that was another sort of key element. And a key person right here that really comes into play in my whole story and my shift is Bill Giddes. Yes, he should be well known by every. He's very well known by people in my generation because he was the editor of Jugglers Ruled Magazine and the Juggler. Bill was the man. Uh, let's give a shout out to Bill Giddes. Bill Giddes. I used to refer to him as the Big Kahuna. You okay, know? he's a tall dude, so he's a big, he's a big Kahuna. And, and at that point, Bill was president of the IJA. Right, exactly. He was editor of Juggler's World magazine. He published Juggler's World. It got published right here in Charlotte, and he used to go to the printer and pick up the bags and bags of magazines and take them to his house. And he would invite me and a couple of juggling friends from the club over, and we would sit there and stick the labels on the IJA magazines, on Juggler's World magazines, to go out to famous jugglers all over the world. And that was one of the coolest things <laughs> to me. I mean, I probably put your label on your magazine at one point and thought, oh, Dan Holtzman, how cool. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was the neatest thing. I often wanted to slip a little note in there. To- oh, that would have been great. That would have been fun. Because I, you know, I am a life member, uh, number 83, so I got the magazines for years and years and years. Yeah, so that was really having Bill live nearby was, was a key element because also, another cool thing was the Atlanta convention. The IJA was in Atlanta in, what was that, 85 or 86? 85, I think. Yeah, not good at the years, but you also have that uh, Groundhog's Day festivals in Atlanta as well. Indeed, indeed. So what was your first festival then? Was it the IJA or, or? IJA in Atlanta because not, yeah, not too long after I met Bill through the mm-hmm. local juggling club, Bill said, hey, there's going to be this international juggling convention in Atlanta in a few weeks. You should come down. So relatively soon after I was introduced into the juggling world in general, I was at an IJA convention, and it was a big one. And and my head just exploded. All of these professional jugglers and all these seemingly cool people seemed like a really fun... What stood out? Any any particular jugglers or or shows that you can remember from back then? I can't really picture it too well. I'm sure I was there, right, I think? Watching you guys. I remember watching early Raspini brothers just working out in the gym one time. Uh, I remember watching a very young David Diebel 
and Keziah Tannenbaum passing. And just all these sort of legendary jugglers from me reading the magazines were all in this one place. Uh, and it just blew my mind. It just sort of rocked my world. I was sort of like, wow, this is really interesting sort of microcosm of a, of a world here that I really like. A lot of people, and, and I knew some of these people through other mutual associations, through the Grateful Dead and through other. So it was sort of like, not totally alien to me, but something that I really connected with and identified with from that first experience, from that first IJA convention. Yeah, those first IJA conventions or any uh, festival experience, that first time you go. Yeah. Because it, you're kind of in a vacuum. At least we were. The thing about our days, because I'm 53, we kind of came up at the same time, is that you only read the magazine and maybe you were lucky enough to see a clip of some of these jugglers. That's right. But yeah. until the magazine came out, you didn't know who was at the festivals, you didn't know who was where. So there was sort of a, a sort of a mystery more than now where you just look someone up on the internet. This is true, yeah. And I used to keep a VHS tape in the machine. So whenever a variety act would come on, you could just hit, hit record. Right, right. And as a result, I've got these old VHS tapes of three to five minute variety acts, a whole tape of these, and I would collect them and watch them. And that was the only way you could see this kind of stuff was to get together with someone else who had another collection of videotapes. Yeah, we had one guy in the neighborhood, his name was John Luker. This was before I went to visit uh, Barry Bacalor. Okay. He was a very important figure like on the West Coast because he had the huge collection of videos. So one guy had, a, had like Dick Franco and Barrett Felker and Francis Brunn and Chris Cremo and Rudy Schweitzer. Over and over we'd watch it. Yeah, it's like studying the history. It's like learning where all this stuff comes from. It gives you a good foundation. It gives you a good sense of precedence. It gives you a good, you realize that many have come before you. It's just something comforting about seeing that stuff and realizing there's a historical precedence. I think it's good to see the variety too, because there's so many ways to be a successful juggler. Yep. You don't have to be good in the way that Francis Brunn is good. You can, you can aspire to that level, say, I want to be that good, but in my own way. That's right. And of course, all, all of my earlier influence were, were more comedic. The Karamazov brothers, you guys, uh, Waldo Woodhead. And that's, you know, once again, getting back to the cooking thing, that's how we came up with the name Fettuccine Brothers. Makes sense, right? I mean, my first partner, Sean, uh, we were met in the kitchen working as, as cooks. So that's sort of why we came up with the name Fettuccine Brothers. So did you start as a duo before you started doing solo work? Was that your introduction to performing? You know, I worked briefly. I had a, a very brief solo career here locally. Uh, I, the, one of my first big things was uh, participating in the local production of Barnum. Okay. The little theater here in Charlotte did a production of Barnum and, and bought me in to, to teach the entire cast to juggle for a couple of scenes and to sort of star in a couple of little uh, juggling sequences. And, and in exchange, they got me a nice write-up in the local paper with my phone number printed. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah. And, and back then, of course, we're talking early, or mid-80s. This was 84. Uh, there were no other jugglers in the area, nobody else doing anything like that. Charlotte was a booming town, a, becoming the big banking city that it became. So all of a sudden, my phone started ringing off the hook. Yeah, so eventually the part-time juggling gigs started paying more than the cooking job all week. So it was an easy transition for me at that point in my life to, to try this full-time juggling thing as a profession. So you're doing so well as a solo, then what, what brought upon this desire to team up then with another juggler? Well, part of it was many of my early influences were partner acts and team acts, both in the juggling realm and in the comedy realm. And then finding the right person was key. I met Sean. Uh, he was a dishwasher at the uh, restaurant where I cook. And right away we had an immediate chemistry. 
that really clicked. And he knew how to juggle a little bit, but we worked on passing. And and the restaurant we worked at was a very slow restaurant. <laughs> so, so you had plenty of time to... We had lots of time to... We find ourselves back there juggling whisks and cracking jokes and entertaining the staff. And I just sort of figured I should bring him out on my gig. So I took him out on a gig or two and, and it just clicked. It was just magic. So... And that was the first name? The fettuccine was the first choice? You said, okay, that's it? No, we tried. We were hang time for a little bit, very briefly. And then we were the flying fettuccine brothers, of course, inspired by the flying Karamazovs. A little hacky, I know. And the sort of genre of circus acts, sort of like, we like that. We clipped our wings pretty early on and just shortened it to fettuccine brothers. Uh, I was Alfredo and, and Sean was Al Dante. Okay, so that was the original fettuccine brothers. You've gone through a couple of different cast changes. And how uh, how long was this first partnership go for? Well, you know, Sean and I struck at, at really the right time. Timing w was so perfect for, for what we were doing. Edward Jackman had been tearing up the college market at that point. Uh, he was coming through town every few months playing a college, and comedy was booming then. There were comedy clubs everywhere. The uh, TV shows, It was this is when the Comedy Channel was relatively new. So it was this wide-open market, and we just sort of connected. We had a lot of really good connections happen early on with good agents that helped us get into the right markets that we wanted to be in, uh, starting out with more local stuff, festivals and fairs, and then moving up into the corporate market a little bit. And then eventually, we had some really great years in the college market, some really, really good years. And then so how many years total were you with your first partner? Sean and I, it was probably about an 11 year run that we uh, were bull time going at it. You know, like I said, we, we sort of climbed up the ranks. It was one of those things. Uh, I forget who it is. I think it's Oscar Wilde who said there are two great tragedies in life. One is not getting what you want. And the other one is getting what you want. And it was almost like everything we wanted, we got. It was almost too easy and too successful. And we would do it till we just got sick and burn out on it. We wanted to do colleges. We did them till we were doing so many that we were snapping at each other. We wanted to do ships. We did ships till we were sick of cruise ships. They started to feel like minimum security prisons. I mean, uh, so we, we had a lot of success and, and a great career, but uh, burnout hit. I think we kind of didn't pace ourselves well enough. And so when the act split apart, did uh, Sean go on and become a solo? What happened at that time to, to you for him to decide, OK, I'm, I'm done? And how did that sort of affect you? Yeah, we had reached a point of sort of, we just said, hey, we just need to stop. We need to take a break from being on the road and performing and just sort of catch our breath. And he ended up moving down to Charleston and meeting a gal down there. And, and I stayed in Charlotte. And that's when I started doing a little bit of stagehand work. Ended up getting my union card as an IOTC professional stagehand and learned all the backside of the house stuff, lighting, sound, production, wardrobe. And by me staying close to the theater and close to the stage, I realized within a year that that I really missed performing, that that was really where my heart was and where my soul was. And, and with Sean, it had the complete opposite effect. When he stepped away from it, he realized he didn't want to have anything to do with it again. The, nothing about it seemed interesting to him anymore. Almost like the chapter had closed for him. Well, it's not for everybody. There definitely have been partnerships and teams where one person was definitely more enamored with the life, enamored with juggling and being a performer. The other person, it was a stage they went through and then they finally go, okay, now I'm on to my real life. But for most of us, this is the real life. That's true. And, and that story you tell right there is it was the demise of at least one or two partner acts that I know, that very story that you told. It's not always like a big fight where you start hating each other and then one, you know, you both go into separate acts and now you have two solo acts. Some people go like, I'm just done juggling. One guy became a, uh, I think it was Vanilla Town Vaudeville. 
I think he started making, no, this was um, Project Dynamite. I think one went on to make prosthetic limbs. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then other people go on to uh, like uh, Clockwork, of course, uh, Jack Calvin and Rick Rubenstein. Jack went on to a solo career and then Rick went on to work with Apple and, and be in tech field. But guys like us, I guess we're lifers, Steve. You and I are lifers. Like I said, that you know that old saying, sometimes you have to step away from something you love to realize how much you really love it. And, and my one-year absence from working full-time as an entertainer really just ensured, and to me, even more so that I'm stuck. <laughs> so then you got back in as a solo, or did you team up with... Because I know you had some other partners, so... Well, yeah. At that point, once again, fate dealt me a good hand. Mike Heitman, who was a uh, Ringling Clown College graduate and a, a pretty good performer in his own right, and had spent lots of time on the stage in, in different capacities, and knew of the Fettuccini brothers and, and knew of our reputation and just happened to be here in my area, finishing up a contract from a, a one project and looking for something to do. And thus, uh, instead of uh, Alfredo and Al Dante, Alfredo and Al Fresco were born. I think, those, I think that's the, the, uh, the, the grouping I know best of the Fettuccini brothers. I think with you and Sean, I might have seen you at one convention. Yeah, we never crossed paths with Sean. We never really crossed paths a lot. We, we were in the same circles as far as marketing and selling. And many times we would get confused because of Raspini, Fettuccini, and then there were the guys out of Atlanta, Zucchini. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Now, we knew at a certain point there were lots of Eenies out there. A lot of Eenie hacks, a lot of two-man comedy juggling Eenie hacks. <laughs> there were a couple times people got us confused. Yeah, and we were inspired by the Karamazovs. Sometimes people would want to call us, oh, you're the flying, or, or you're the flying Raspini brothers. We're like, no, 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 we're not, we don't fly, we're not flying. <laughs> We are brothers. We, you know, we do call ourselves brothers, but we got to draw the line somewhere. So you and Mike teamed up. And then uh, did you do some of the old material? Did you create new stuff or how'd that work? At first, I sort of broke him in with the old stuff. That seemed to be the smartest thing to do. We sort of what the musicians call we woodshedded. You know, mm -hmm. we just we rented a studio. And for about three to four months, we just every day went into the studio and juggled and practiced and worked on the act to get it, uh, get the timing right, to get him up to speed. Uh, you know, at that point, I was still thought I just wanted to be a team act. The, the uh, idea of a solo act at that point didn't interest me. Um, the Fettuccini Brothers, the smartest thing we ever did, and it wasn't really a planned move, but business-wise, one of the smartest things that I did, because I sort of ran the business act, was I never really put in a period at the end of the sentence when Sean and I stopped performing. You know, I never contacted all of our agents or, or all of our business people and said, hey, the Fettuccini Brothers are over, we've stopped, we're not performing. We just sort of stopped taking gigs. And in the entertainment world, they forget about you real quick. But the bottom line was no one thought that we had stopped or quit or ended. So when I was ready to sort of restart the machine with Mike, it was relatively easy to do. And what were some high points of, the, of working with Mike? Were there any gigs that stood out as being like, yeah, these were the ones, these were the... Yeah, we had some good gigs too. We, we've done a couple trips overseas. Uh, we've been to China a couple times. Some really fun adventures there. Uh, worked a couple of culinary arts festivals, which is great, kind of going in and, and playing these pretend chefs and doing some juggling stuff on these cooking stages. Did a few of those events. I just some good, good, good shows. Had a good run. But then after doing that with Mike for, I don't know, maybe about seven or eight years, he got an opportunity to, to move down to the beach to be a part of this uh, former, a bunch of former Ringling Clowns were putting together a group called the Seaside Circus. It was a pretty good opportunity for him. It was something that I really couldn't fault him. Sure. 
for wanting to go do. Uh, he was a single parent at the time, raising his daughter on his own, and this represented a little more of a steady check. So, uh, so there I was again, kind of sitting there going, wow, now here I am on my own again after going through two partners. <laughs> you know? But there always is, a, like, like the Raspinis, even though we're not working as much, like I'm sure there always will be a fettuccine. Like if someone called and said, hey, I have this two-man job, you can call Mike, and if he's available. Well, yes, indeed. We still, in fact, we just we've done a few dates recently. We we still we don't actively sell and market ourselves, but mm -hmm. but we still get a lot of what I call uh, residual work from uh, happy clients and former things like that, and so we, we still do those kind of things. But at that point, that's when I started realizing, okay, it's. It's time for me to stop putting all of my performing eggs in, in one basket with a partner and depending on that person to always be there. That was a, it was a good move. It was at that point, I think, was around the time they were having the final motion fest mm -hmm. up there in Baltimore. Michael Rosman and all of his group running that. So I went up there and, and, and did that and and. That gave me a lot of inspiration and new ideas, attending all these classes and workshops and sort of re-inspired me and reignited my fire as a, as a solo performer. And you, you always struck me as a guy who was always looking to learn new skills. So the first that I really remember was uh, you became the paddleball king. You decided to stretch out and add some new skills to your juggling and you were intrigued by paddleball. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. That was uh, one of the first sort of solo fun things that sort of took over. Um, and, and that goes back to the days of Sean and I working together. You know, we spent so much time on the road, we would buy these cheap dime store paddle balls. And just with all this downtime we had, we were always playing with ideas for routines, but never developed anything. Things like what you're doing, knocking stuff out. We just do crazy stuff sitting around the hotel room. But it never developed into anything on stage. So later on, when I'm developing the solo career, and I'm trying to look for things that might make me stand out a little bit, things that not everybody are, is doing or using, and started playing with paddle balls and reconnected, if you will, with the prop to a large degree. And you and I were just recently commiserating the fact that the new paddle balls, like there's a company uh, that came out with a, a new improved paddle ball, they were just total garbage. The actual ability to use them for tricks and for higher-end paddleball stunts, the people making them don't realize that, that there's even that possibility, and they've ruined it. Yeah, in the, in the quest to come up with something new and different, they, they've kind of come up with something that just doesn't really even function basically at all. It's a shame. I think some things you just can't improve on, and I think the paddleball is one of those things. It's pretty good in its simplistic design. So uh, playing with paddle balls, and, and I meet this kid kind of online, and we sort start, sort of challenging each other, doing paddle ball tricks. He'd put up a video of him doing something, I'd put up a video going back and forth, and we had this sort of online YouTube competition going between us. I'd never met this guy before. And at one point, I kind of, by looping a video, I put a video up of me doing nine paddle balls, which I really couldn't do for any length of time. I looked, looked like I just rocked it long time so that's so, so nine would be like you have three in your pants like in the front of your three in my pants three in each hand the full spread right you know? so the one in the pants you're kind of like doing an up and down hopping a little hopping sort of humping sort of uh, slightly suggestive perhaps and did you have a problem one time when you went to do a show air humping. i'm air humping basically yes. but then you went to like china and they, they thought it was too obscene to show is that yeah, yeah so let me get to that i'm getting that. so so what happened so i've got this video on of me doing supposedly doing nine paddles well dick franco at the time was in, in negotiations with the guinness world record tv show to get uh his stepson ty tojo on to set a five ball back cross record 
And and I guess one of the producers of the show said to Dick, hey, we, we, we need some more acts for the show. Do you know of any really crazy, silly, fun, whatever, loopy things? And, and Dick had just seen that video of me. Somehow, I'm not sure how he came across it. Now they're saying good timing again. Yeah, exactly. Once again, serendipity strikes. So Dick sent them this video. And so I get this email from Dick Franco one day going, hey... You might be hearing from this Guinness World Record TV show in Milan, Italy. You know, they, they want to fly you over to be on the show. Uh, da, 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 da. So I'm going, wow. Hey, <laughs> I better good. start working on the trick. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go, oh, I better learn how to actually do this. That would be right, exactly. <laughs> so a little bit of time passes and I think, oh, it's just another one of those things in this business. You get so many things come your way that never follow through. And eventually I get this email from this producer of, of this Guinness World Record TV show in Milan. And they want to fly me over to do this uh, nine paddle ball set a, a new world record. And of course, I said yes immediately. <laughs> At that time, once you knew, did you start working on it a little bit? So by the time it came, you were like, I can do this. And, and they wanted to shoot me pretty early in the season. And I was able to, to negotiate that back and further into the season. Yeah, which bought me a couple months. Oh, I got you. That was smart. To shoot for a while. Right, right. Uh, so. so Steve, the question is, you go to Milan. Did you set the record? What was the experience like when you got out there? Oh, you know, it was it was a wonderful experience overall. An epic tale of of uh, highs and lows, of ultimate victory. I did set the Guinness World Record. I had a triumphant experience on the TV show. Uh, met a lot of great people. Overall, just a, a great experience. But uh, the whole story and all the things that went down. It's almost like a whole hour's worth of a whole no almost like a whole nother drop everything episode. For some reason, they wanted you to do it differently, I remember, and then you had equipment problems. and they, they didn't give me a lot of details because this was a brand new record. I kept trying to get as much information from them before I went over. Things like, could I attach the paddles together? Or how can I fasten them to my body? Guinness, uh, they're... they're they're, they're sticklers. They're very detail-oriented with their criteria. This was my first experience with them, so I was just learning all this stuff. But um, I, I wanted to practice it the way that they were going to let me perform it when I got there. Sure. And, and the way I practiced it and the when I got there, they had ruled against most of the methods that I was using. So all of a sudden, although I was actually doing nine by the time I went over there, the methods that they disallowed me to use brought that number down to where I was lucky if I could do seven. Mm. But you got nine off on the show. No, I did not. I actually ended up setting the record um, at, at seven was the final record that I ended setting it at. And what they do, because it was a brand new record, whenever it's a brand new record and it's on a TV show, what they actually have you do is set the record in rehearsal. Oh, I got you. So they want to make sure you've done it. Well, yeah. And, well, in that way, when they film the TV show, it's more dramatic because right. instead, of, instead of them saying, hey, he's setting a new record, so whatever he does works, they can go, he's trying to break a world record. Well, they don't say he set the record yet. So what I, in rehearsal, I, they wanted me to set a record at a certain number and then break it on the TV show. And then that number in rehearsal was brought down to such a low number that the producers started like freaking out and going, man, we brought you over here to do nine paddles and you can only do five. What's Oof. up with that? You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> That's a, that's a bad place to be in, I think. Oh, it was horrible, Dan. And, and I, I specifically and so thoroughly in all of my communications and emails tried so hard to prevent what was happening from happening. I really did because I saw that coming down the pike. It's like, 
you people have to give me more information before I get there. And so the whole time, the rehearsal just went horrible. I barely did five. This producer's coming up to me just in my ear and my face going, you're not doing what we wanted you to do. You, anybody can do five. At one point, she said that. Anybody can do five. <laughs> and, I, and at that point, I said, I'll tell you what, Francesca, let's grab anybody here from the studio. Anybody, you pick them, and let's just see them do two. <laughs> And, and then you tell me that anybody can do five, okay? Because right, right. at that point, my ire was up, and I was trying to be polite. And, I, and I even told her at one point, I said, I came over here to have fun. I'm a professional juggler. This is not even what I really do for a living. And you tried. I mean, that's the thing. You tried to go, look, I, did. I, need, I need to be specific. Because when I get here, and you tell me, oh, they can't be fastened together, or they can't be held in my pants this way, you basically just screwed me. Yep, they tied my hands. Yeah, but even with that experience, you seem to have gotten this uh, quest to be a multiple Guinness world record uh, setter, because that, that's not your only record. That's right, because that just sort of inspired me. Um, once I came home, after setting the record and coming home and doing a little research, I realized that there were absolutely zero paddleball records in the Guinness book. At all. You would think that with a, a toy that's been around since the 30s, just the longest time doing it, exactly, something like that. Nothing. There's but nothing in there. So uh, that's when the inspiration to create the persona of the Paddleball King kind of came about. Um, I said, well, I'll put up a bunch of Paddleball records. I'll become the ruler of all that is Paddleball. I'll be the Paddleball King. <laughs> exactly. But then you realize the kingdom of the Paddleball maybe it's not exactly as, as large and thriving as maybe you thought it might have been. Small kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> but we're very lucky because if you are interested in getting a paddle ball, there is a very good resource for a very good wooden paddle ball. Oh, you, know, right. you, know who, you know who I'm talking about? I might know where a few are available. The Paddle Ball King. Give us your, your, your address for people who might be interested in getting a good quality paddle ball. That's right, www.thepaddleballking.com. We'll shout out. So I just bought three of them myself. Hey, get those yet? Yeah, this just came uh, yesterday. Awesome. I, I like to think they're good paddles. Uh, it's so funny, like like you were talking about before. At first, when I was learning the paddle balls, there's very few of us who were into paddle balls. You, me. His name was Ashton, right? This kid you were talking about? That's right. Ashton and I eventually became good friends. Yep, yep. What's his last name? We'll put up a, a link to him as well. He has some good videos. Ashton Friedenberger. Yep. Friedenberger. Friedenberger. And he's got some great YouTube videos out there of him. He's a paddle ball monster, this guy, man. He's yeah, he wasn't, he's not what you'd call maybe a performer type. He's more of like a that guy on Big Bang. What do you call that yeah. guy? Nerd, nerd type. <laughs> but he showed up at an IJ convention one time, had never been to one, showed up and actually got up on Club Renegade and did his paddle ball routine and did great, was very well received and, and really enjoyed the experience. Oh, great guy. I'm not trying to, you know. Yeah, oh no, I'm just saying he's not a performer at all. Not a professional entertainer. That's why I was really impressed with what he did there, getting up and doing that. Uh, really nice kid though, super guy. Super yeah, but guy. when I first got into paddle balls, like I said, there wasn't many of us, you, me, I think maybe David Kane and a few others. Yeah. My first idea was I'm gonna do like a routine with two of them, one in each hand and do all the very, even though there's not that many variations, there's above the head and there's, turning the, them over and off the feet and body moves, things like that. And then I was going on a cruise ship and I wanted to knock something out of someone's mouth like they do with the clubs or, you know, when you're passing around somebody or you do with a whip. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, what can I use to knock a cigarette out of someone's mouth? Because I hate whips and I'm, not, I'm with a solo now. So I, I started doing it with a paddle ball, immediately got good response, it was funny. And then I never worked on the more difficult stuff again, having then developed a routine. Right. All I have to do is basically be able to hit the paddle ball kind of in a forward direction. These new paddle balls are so bad, I can't even do that. 
you can't even do that with it. Yeah, it's got that wedge cut out in the top of the paddle. It's so I, and I went to get these ones from Active People. Used to have one where you could adjust the string. Yeah, which was yeah. really great. They had like a spool with extra string inside the spool. Yes. Because the thing about paddle balls is that the strings do break. Strings gonna break every time. It's yeah. gonna break a case. Yeah, especially if you buy one just from the supermarket. That thing's gonna break after two or three hits. Yeah, the wood's not good. It's stapled to the thing. The rubber, the rubber on the rubber band is 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 old. It's not good. It's brittle. Yeah. So moving forward, I thought, okay, I need to get some more paddle balls. So I looked out and got. I looked around. I bought the new ones. I went back and said, okay. Yeah. Only good ones left now, the Paddleball King. So there's my endorsement for the uh, Paddleball King Paddleballs. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate sure, that. Man. Sure. I think it's a good product. Um, and I made them in the sort of uh, design, sort of in an old school style, because I think that that's a good style. It's a functional style. You know, I tried to, to when I found the source for the balls, I tried to find just that right type of red sponge rubber that those old flybacks were made with. Finding the rubber line was one of the biggest challenges. And, and to be honest, the whole reason I started selling paddle balls in the first place was I needed good paddle balls and I couldn't find them. And so I, I had to make them for myself. And in, in order to do that, I had to invest in this <laughs> a bunch of rubber bands. You know? And you have a huge paddle ball as well. Do you have the record for the largest paddle ball? I do. Well, the, the Guinness actually Guinness rejected me on that one. It's, it's a world record on recordsetters.com. There was a a slight design error that they ruled out on. But yes, the world's largest functional paddle ball. I have a paddle ball that's over nine feet that actually functions, that I can actually operate. So let's end the uh, paddle ball section of this podcast with that story, because I've heard this story before about, so you so you do the record on in Italy, and then some other, other shows become interested in you setting the record on other shows. Yes, there's a network of these Guinness World Records shows. I think eight to 12 of them, and they're all filmed in different nations around the world. So good to know for the people out there, like, hey, if you want to get on some foreign TV shows... That's right. Maybe figure out a, a new Guinness record or beat an existing record. Exactly, and although Guinness does not pay to set records... If you get booked on a TV show, the TV production company pays you to be on the show. I see. So you get an appearance fee as well as your expenses. When you're, and Guinness, Guinness doesn't produce these shows. Basically, what they do is they license their name and they come and officiate. So the shows are produced by independent television production companies in the countries where they film them. So the Milan show was such a success that um, Marco Fregatti. He's sort of he's he's kind of like the big cheese at Guinness. He's sort of the the official keeper of Guinness records, and he's almost like the face of Guinness records. He's on all the TV shows. Marco had recommended me for the China version of the Guinness show. I guess he liked what he saw in the Milan show. A, a month after being home from Milan, I'm getting this email from this Chinese television producer, Mr. Langley. We would love to have you on our show for you to come beat your your world record with paddles and i'm um, part of me's kind of going wow this is great this is a neat opportunity but another part of me's going i just set this record i want to kind of enjoy it a little bit you know? <laughs> okay <laughs> no, not to say i want to rest on my laurels but that's a good tip though right if you're going to set a record don't set it too high so if you can beat it a few times yourself yes indeed so establish yeah. what the lowest they'll take is giving yourself the ability to beat it in future episodes. Indeed. And that was one of the things that Marco told me in one of our conversations in Milan. He said, as Guinness officials, we like records that can be beaten. Okay. Because a, a record that can't be beaten is a dead record to them. They get no more business out of that. A record that can be beaten and beaten again and again gives them more mileage. So at any rate, yeah, don't go in and, and slam a record and do the most you can do. Always, you know, beat it and leave a little room. So right. 
I'm thinking I can go to China and perhaps beat this record by one. So we're going back and forth and, and we negotiate a fee and a traveling partner. And we're 90 percent along in the negotiation. This thing is almost signed, sealed and delivered. And at one point they say, are there any props or things that we could provide for you here on stage? And and I said, uh, well, you know, there is a tape. I could use a table. Let me send you a videotape of my appearance in Italy and you can see the table I use there. So you know what will work. Right. I sent them this video and immediately got an email back from her. And I could just tell a real panicked tone. This, this email was like, oh, Mr. Langley, uh, we are very, very sorry. We cannot have you on uh, television. And she's just like, oh, the, I'm thinking, first of all, I knew what the problem was. <laughs> right, the crotch thrusting. Yeah, it's the nature of the trick. You've got paddles strapped around your waist and you're kind of humping. And while the Italians love that and we're cheering and embracing it, it, China, it's slightly different attitude about that. That reminds me of a story. Me and Barry, we did a show for uh, this country TV channel. I forget, it was called the Crazy Horse Saloon or something. <laughs> and we had this uh, bullwhip routine where I would come out. We, we've modified it since then, but I wear like a fencing helmet and a fencing chest piece. I have balloons attached all over my body. And at the time, we were using one for the groin. It was like one of those long, like four foot long <laughs> tubular balloon. Not a, not, a, not a model balloon, but a giant phallic looking balloon. <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> so in the rehearsal, we do it exactly like we're going to do it. Like Barry goes to, sh to, to hit it. I move it out of the way. I start shaking it. I'm doing quite a, quite a, a, a long series of dick oriented jokes. <laughs> and we do it in rehearsal, no problem. We do it on the show, no problem. The flood of letters the next day, no. I guess, was a bit extreme. Because <laughs> like you said, sometimes they're like, going, oh, that sounds good. Or these are whip balloons. They don't even really watch the video. They don't even know. But then when, they, when the trouble starts flying, they're like, well, like, I showed it to you. You saw the video. You saw the rehearsal. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's was, there was even a, a review they sent us from the paper the next day. Oh, they, they panicked. They panicked. Um, yeah. We'll come to find out. And her excuse, I mean, I kept trying to get her to admit to me what the problem was. Right, you know? right, right. Because I wanted her to say it was the sexual nature of the trick. But she kept saying, oh, well, her first excuse was when the record was described to them, which is the most paddles controlled by one person, they pictured squash paddles. What? Not paddle, not paddle balls. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then their other excuse was, they were afraid that no one in China would know what a paddle ball is, which is funny if you really think about it, because 90% of them are made in China, <laughs> except for mine. Mine are the only ones that aren't. So uh, they, they panicked. They, they bailed. I mean, I, so I can say that, you know, when I perform that trick now on the show, whenever I do the, the pants paddle trick, I would say, ladies and gentlemen, you're about to see a trick right now that millions and millions and millions of Chinese people were banned from seeing. <laughs> they were denied. <laughs> this is the trick that represents America. It represents freedom. It represents democracy. <laughs> That's good. There you go. So you got a good bit out of it. But now you've moved on from paddle balls. I, I got a good story out of it. Yeah. So I see uh, your new passion is bubbles. So yeah, the, so I'm inter once I get hicked on, on a Guinness World Record, like they say, once you get one, you know, you kind of get the Guinness fever. Right. So I accumulated a few paddle ball records, and looking, I'm thinking, you know, I'm a juggler. I wouldn't mind setting a juggling-related Guinness World Record. That would be fun. I saw that they had a record for someone bouncing a bubble up and down on their hand, the most bounces on their hand, and I thought, geez, that's pretty mundane. That's pretty boring. 
wouldn't a bubble juggling record be more exciting, more interesting? So, so I applied to Guinness. That's the way the process works. Uh, you either want to set a new record or beat an established one. In either case, the first step is to go to the Guinness World Record website, research it if you want to break one, and then you apply. You, mm -hmm. you apply to Guinness and they either accept it or they don't. Is there a fee associated with that? I mean, do they charge? Not. No fee at all for applying. Applying is completely free. And they will either approve or reject your, uh, your application. Much more difficult to get them to approve a new record. Mm. Other, you know, they're much more stringent about accepting what a new record is. I've had a lot of records rejected at that point. What people don't realize is that there's lots of records that aren't in the book. I mean, you can still be a Guinness World Record holder and never appear in the book. The majority of them are not in the book anymore because they've changed the format of the book and mm -hmm. there's not as many in there. It's more of a coffee table illustrated book now. Yeah, it's more of like a People magazine style. And it's, all, it's an editorial decision whether you make the book or not. Right. So that's interesting to know because I thought, oh, every record's in the book. You're like, well, okay, there's only these records to beat are the ones you see listed. But there are hundreds and hundreds of records that you could look at. and They can't include them all in the book. There's no yeah. way. Yeah. And most people are confused and think that they, when I tell them I set a record, they go, oh, so you're in the book then. I go, well, no, not yet. I haven't made the book yet. I've got four records and I've yet to make the book. Mm. Yeah, I've made the book. I made the book because they like the picture, I think. Yeah, and that's a whole other level of sort of achievement that you want as a Guinness World Record holder. Once you win a few records and you're like, ooh, I want to be in the book. <laughs> yeah, I got it pretty, pretty early and easily way back when. But I'm thinking about a new record myself, so look in the future. Are you keeping that one under your hat? Or are I you think I have to because it's something that I think the idea is pretty um, doable in that. I don't think it's overexploited like the paddle balls. Yeah. I think it's in sort of a juggling area that hasn't had any records associated with it per se. Sure. But like you're saying, I wouldn't be beating an existing record. I'd have to convince them that this would be a good new record and also beatable by other people, yeah. And that's tricky to do. It's hard to... Um to convince them of a new one. But but they'll buy, I mean, I've sold them on a couple of new ones. All my paddle ball ones w were new records. So I applied for this bubble juggling record as a new record and then immediately started delving into the world of soap bubbles, mm -hmm. uh, trying to learn about the chemistry of soap, trying to learn how to make a bubble solution that you can actually juggle, that, that you can bounce and, and handle without it popping. In the process of studying the medium, of studying the art form, I just became enamored with it. I mean, just completely obsessed. Yeah, yeah, it just took a hold of my life. It's crazy. <laughs> and you call yourself what, a bubbleologist? That's the official name of a... Yeah, that's kind of the term that bubble people use. We're bubbleologists. <laughs> yeah, we have a very good guy here, Sterling Johnson, in town. Sterling's good. He calls himself the bubble whisperer. Is that what he calls it? Yeah. He actually yeah. produces the bubbles mostly with his hands. Yes. He's kind of king of the hand bubblers. He's that sort of, he's one of the main guys that pioneered that medium. But you use a lot of poles and different apparatus to produce giant balloons, produce multiple balloons. And you have the record for hanging balloons. Is that correct? Hanging bubbles, I mean. Yeah, my very first soap bubble-related Guinness World Record was set just a few weeks back. It's the uh, the longest hanging chain of connected soap bubbles. The current record was 30, and I managed to do 35. And I'm sure you have a few more. Uh, how many do you think you could do? 
Oh, I, you know, in some of my rehearsals, I did as many as 60. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So once again, I was able to leave some room. And I know for a fact that Marco is kind of semi-interested in possibly selling this record to another one of his uh, TV Good. shows. So maybe a, a future Guinness TV appearance could be in the world. Yes, it's exciting. And, and you know, Dan, at first, you know, I thought, I didn't think this so much with the paddle ball as much as you think it would. But with the bubble thing, I started really feeling like I was going off on this sort of really obtuse tangent. And just sort of like going out in left field, it's like from from juggling to, to being a bubbleologist, that, that's just so bizarre. But as I started delving into the history of bubbles, bubblers and bubbleologists going back to um, the days of vaudeville, there were actually bubbling acts back in vaudeville. And we have to mention Tom Noddy, of course. Of course, the godfather, the Yoda of bubblers, if you will. Have um, you met him? Have you, do you know Tom? I have not met Tom yet. Well, you're in for a real treat. Tom Noddy is a world-class gentleman and a world-class storyteller. So you, you spend some time with Tom Noddy, you'll get some great stories. In, in the world of bubbling, there's like bubbling before Tom and bubbling after Tom. Yeah, because he made that, that famous appearance on The Carson Show. Many appearances. When people yeah. started blowing the smoke into the bubbles to make them more visible and more visual and create like the carousel and the, the erupting volcano and all these different tricks. And now it seems to me as if this bubbling has been a really good also career move as well. Like you seem to be getting a lot of work as a bubble performer. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And, and that's, I think, due to more than anything, just rarity. It's a pretty limited art form. There's not a lot of people doing it in the, in the world of bubblers worldwide it's a very small group of people and and so uh yeah it's it's been a great boost to my career uh, when i first started delving into soap bubbles it was a little over a year ago and and i had just um wrapped up sort of booking a whole festival full of entertainment one of the things i do in addition to being an entertainer sort of a natural progression is as occasionally i'll serve as a, what i call an entertainment consultant um, bring in acts for a, a bigger event yes sometimes a client or a sponsor will go hey why don't you just bring in a bunch of your friends and your other people and you book this stage for the whole weekend mm. And you'll get a fee as the coordinator, of course. Indeed, indeed. Charge a percentage in addition to be able to just surround myself with people who I like to work with and good professionals. So it's a good situation. But there was that time, if we get into one of your, I know this pretty uh, well-known hell story. And, and yeah, I had, a, I had a festival go bad on me. I, you know, this festival, I'd been doing it for years to the tune of five figures, a nice big check booking four days worth of talent. I would pay the acts. They would write me the check. It was all, you know, mistakenly, a huge mistake on my part was I wasn't getting a huge deposit on this thing. I see. So you were paying them out of your own pocket, getting reimbursed by the fair. Yeah, we operated a lot on good faith. I would pay the entertainers and go hold this check until Tuesday when I put the check in from the client. I'd done it enough years to where I didn't question the viability of it. I didn't question their, you know good faith. It was just something that we did every year. Well, all it takes is one time. Well, one time I went to go collect the check at the end of the festival and, and they uh, couldn't even really look me in the eye. <laughs> and you'd already paid these other acts. You had brought them in. All my che written checks out to all the performance course told them not to cash them yet. I said, hold on to these. And they said, the board of directors has advised us to not make any payments right now. And oh my gosh. Yeah. And that was like a multi-day, multi-entertainer contract. Yep, I had made three out-of-town trips just to go down for meetings. I'd invested so much, paid for all my hotels, paid the performance. I mean, I was in the—it was oh, it was devastating. 
devastating, Dan. One of the, so I was in this deep, dark depression. Just, I had to come home and call all of those performers, all of my good friends and say, Hey, guess what guys, that check I gave you for a couple thousand dollars uh, that I told you would be good in a couple days. It's not going to be good. Probably never. Were the people, were they cool about it? Gosh, thank goodness I work with such good friends and such experienced professionals. Everybody knew it wasn't my fault. Mm. And, and they were all very understanding. And it had all happened to every one of them before. For myself, knock on wood, I'd been in business over eight, uh, 20 years at that point, And I'd never been stiff before. I've always been paid. So they ended up filing Chapter 7. So there was nothing there for me, for us to get. But the bubbles. At that point, I was just discovering soap bubbles. And when I would get really at my deepest darkest, most depressed point, I would go out into the driveway and blow some bubbles. And, and I could just literally feel my blood pressure dropping, feel the heart rate <laughs> slowing down. I could feel the stress leaving my body as I made these bubbles. And it kind of saved my life. It really, it, it helped me get through one of the darkest periods of my life. Now all of a sudden it saved my career. Yeah, it seems like you have these multiple days where they want you for every weekend of the summer or something or Yes, it's I've mainly been doing up to this point what a more atmospheric mm. bubbling going and working festivals and fairs, trying to develop the stage show. I mean, I could see you doing that, no problem. I've made some great progress lately and some great strides toward. Well, I've seen some of your stuff on Facebook, like the last one with the multiple bubbles inside the bigger bubble, and then you release some. And yeah, well, you're like me. I think we we get first of all, you're like me as well, is that we like to try to get on TV. It seems like when they had that Jay Leno, that meal or no meal segment. That's right. Got a little a little spin on there before Jay retired. Right, but it just seemed like so many jugglers never even tried. And I'm always like, well, I thought for me, some people were even saying, like, well, you've been on Carson, I've been on three times before that, doing a real act, for two of them at least, with the Raspinis. That's right. You guys had a whole set on there. There was yeah. even a, an old manager of mine. I was there in Los Angeles. I called him on the phone. He's like going, "Why? how can you do that? You shouldn't do that. What are you doing? I'm thinking like, it's a TV appearance. I, I'm getting I'm on the Tonight Show again. Talking about meal or no meal, he was saying? Yeah. He thought it was beneath me. And I'm like, huh. you don't know me very well. Nothing's beneath me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm a juggler. Come on. Exactly. exactly. But it just seems like, especially with like America's Got America's Got Talent, a lot of people are waiting for these perfect opportunities to get on TV. They don't want to be in the audience not being a juggler. Like I, I told them I was a, an artist who painted dachshunds. That's right. They, they didn't want me to say I was a professional entertainer either. And I didn't have a problem with that. No, you look at it like an acting job. You're like, oh, I'm pretending exactly. to be not a juggler. I can do that. That's right. That's right. And you look at it more for, at least I do, it's the experience. So you were on there doing like the punching ball with the face. Is that what you call it? Yeah, the human paddle ball. <laughs> okay, the human paddle ball. Basically, yeah, attached a rubber punch ball to a set of goggles and kind of bounced the ball off my face. And they want a quick little visual 10 second whatever. And then he would ask the panel of judges, is that worth a meal? He'd go, Is that worth a meal? I guess he'd do it more like that. <laughs> Almost like the gong show format to some degree. Yeah, but they knew everybody was going to get a meal. I mean, they basically, you knew going in that they had chosen you to be on the show. Now, also, neither one of us, regretfully, have ever been on Letterman, but you got a, a pretty close call this last uh, last time around. Yes, oh, it was so close. I've never, 
I've never been so close to getting a gig that I wanted so bad and not quite getting it. Um, I'd almost gotten on there before. They, they, there's two opportunities. There used to be two opportunities mm-hmm. to be on Letterman. One was what they called, is this something or is this nothing? Right, the curtain would open, you'd be on stage. You'd be there doing your thing and they closed the curtain. You didn't get to talk to Dave. Yeah, I remember Andy Head, I think Jen Slaw. Quite a few East Coasters did that. Dozens of people did that. My friend in New York. Rich Potter, I remember, did it. Yes, indeed. There was One of our agent friends in New York was kind of the go-to guy for that. So every juggler, any variety entertainer in New York City got that gig at one point. It didn't pay any money and it didn't pay any airfare nor a hotel. It was a throwaway slot on the show. So one point they called me for that. And I don't live in New York, so and I I was willing to go up there. I had a free ticket. I was going to cash in. I was sure. like, I would have too. Yeah, I'll go up there on my dime just to do it for fun. They're like, no, no, we don't want you to do that. You might get bumped and da 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 da. Mm. What I really wanted was the stupid human trick segment. Of course, that they fly you in, you get your own segment, you get to talk to Dave. They put you up. It's the gig to get. So I thought a perfect one was Jonathan Burns and Mark Hayward. I thought that just like I say, that's the perfect kind of stunt. Jonathan held the matches in his mouth, like a matchbook in his mouth, and Mark did the loop to loop with the the yo-yo and lit the matches perfect boom you're done I always thought my paddle ball trick was right up their alley. This multiple paddles was such a stupid human trick and actually it was Jonathan Burns at one point that gave me the the contact for the producer of the segment and he said you had to keep this under your shirt share it with everybody and I I never used it I waited and I waited and I waited and finally it started closing down to the end of, of Letterman and I'm thinking man it might be too late but I'm going to go ahead and send something into him so I sent an email into that uh, address that Jonathan had given me and it was a different producer he's like no that guy's no longer in charge but I am and I love that trick we want to put on the show he's going no way he's like yeah we're going to do one more there's going to be one more segment of stupid human tricks you know this is the date we're doing it da 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 and I'm thinking oh man I'm so in man. and that would have been the one to do I had a friend of mine who was they were it was up between was it you that, that was either Ellen or Letter or the last yes, yes. I, and, and at the same time in the meantime Ellen had called yep and I was like, that's a no-brainer. To do the last stupid human trick ever is the, is the best one, really, because they basically said this is the last one ever. We're only going to choose the acts oh, I know. that we, we really want. And here I was at one point thinking I was going to have to decide between one or two of the shows <laughs> and ended up not getting either one of them. Ah, showbiz, Steve. Showbiz. That's the life of a showbiz uh, entertainer, eh? Well, we're reaching the end of our podcast. So let's speaking about showbiz. Let's talk about the future. What's... Uh, so more bubbles? Where, where does Steve go from here? Of course, I still always consider myself a juggler. Once a juggler, always a juggler. And I still sell my services as a juggler, uh, not as often as I am as a bubbleologist these days. I see myself definitely going more into this this realm of being a professional bubbleologist. It's, it's just such a, it's got a cool factor to it that juggling just doesn't have, it seems. Uh, it's got this universal appeal. Bubbles, uh, they transcend all language, all culture, all politics, all religion. They make everybody smile. It's like liquid smiles dealing with this stuff, man. I mean, just the magic that it infects on an audience. And just the few times that I've been able to present it on stage, I love it. It just gives me so much joy and pleasure to share this new medium with people that I see myself really going that direction. It's something I can, I've also discovered I can age gracefully into. That's <laughs> good, know? eh? I think you start hitting your mid-50s mid and you start realizing that... Uh... Indeed. 
Juggling is a young man's game. Yeah, it, it is. I had a showcase not too long ago, and I had a bout of tendonitis right before the showcase. And it was one of those cold slaps of realities, kind of going, I'm reaching the point to where you know, I've got to find something that's a little more mellow, a little more laid back. I mean, I could see myself blowing bubbles well into my ripe 70s. <laughs> Steve, it's so nice to hear so much passion for this new activity, this love of bubbles. I wish you the best in your bubbleologing. Bubbleologing? Would you say that? Yeah, I don't your, know. Sure. How about your make- career? Good luck with your career as a bubbleologist. I'm sure that you'll always uh, keep one hand in juggling, but this new thing sounds great. Hey, thank you so much for sharing these stories. I think there's a lot to learn from your experiences. One of my favorite guys to talk to, one of my favorite guys to see at the conventions. Once again, a big thanks to Mr. Fettuccini, Mr. Bubbleologist, the Paddleball King, Steve Langley. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure talking with you, man. You're a big hero of mine and a major inspiration. And, and I just, I can't, I can't thank you enough for all your friendship over the years. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to come on here and share with you. Thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed podcast number 19, my conversation with Steve Langley. Thank you, Steve, for taking the time for being on the Drop Everything podcast. Also, a big thanks to the sponsor, the IJA. That, of course, stands for the International Jugglers Association. What a great word, jugglers, and what a great organization. To find out more about the IJA, go to juggle.org. A big thanks to Karen Holzman, and get ready for podcast number 20 with a special surprise guest coming up next. Thanks, everybody. Drop everything except when you're juggling.